Uh, church, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Noah, as Thomas mentioned. I'm the pastor here at Park Community Church, Hyde Park. And as he mentioned as well, we're going to continue our series in uh, the book of Daniel. And so if you have a Bible, phone, tablet, or if you need a Bible, there's one to my right, oh, to your right, my left, um, over there in a the little bookshelf. Um, but we'll be in Daniel 10, you know, about like, yeah, about two-thirds into the Bible. Um, we've been going through the book of Daniel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because as a church, and Kenson made, mentioned this last week, that we want to preach the entire counsel of God's word. And so, as you know, we've been going through some difficult visions and prophecies, um, and uh, this is, you know, it's, it's good for us. It's, you know, it's maybe more, more like solid food for us. And so, what I want to do is I'm going to actually start with verse 1, just verse 1. Um, and let me read it right now and uh, kind of explain why. Verse 1 of chapter 10, it reads, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Balthazar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Now, verse 1 kind of begins, well, it, it does begin, um, on the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and it's around 535 BC, which is only about two years after Daniel receives his vision in chapter 9. But more importantly, we also know that this king, Cyrus, was the one who had allowed the people of Israel, the Jews, to go back to their homeland. And so they were, the Jews now were in exile for 70 years. And so finally, this king allows them to go back to rebuild their homeland and their temple. But if you read the other um, narratives of the Bible, like Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that their return back home was not an easy one. And so you see Daniel here, who's probably too old to go back with them, spending this lengthy time in prayer and seeking the Lord of what will happen to his people. And so God gives him this vision, and it's a vision of great conflict. Literally, the word is war that Daniel receives here. And so verse 1 kind of serves as the summary statement of all the, of the rest of the chapters of Daniel. So chapter 10, 11, and 12, it kind of serves as a summary statement of what is going to happen. Chapter 10 tells us what's gonna ha what happens when the vision is given. Chapter 11 then shows the contents of the vision. And then chapter 12 is the final instructions for Daniel and his people. And so today we're going to focus on chapter 10. Um, it won't be any visions and like prophecies here. And so it's more so of what Daniel experiences in this time. And so let me read Daniel 10, um, starting from verse 2, and then let me pray, and then we'll jump right into our message. Ja Daniel chapter 10, verse 2, it reads, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor that I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold a man, clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from um, Uppaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. 
My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face on the ground. Verse 10, and behold, a man, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word this afternoon. I pray, O oh God, that as we go deep into um, a very interesting story, God, that you would help us see your truth and what you have for us this afternoon. I pray, O oh God, that your word would not go, um, not return void, that your word would um, be planted in our hearts, that our hearts would be good soil, and that it would produce good fruit as we go out and live out this faith in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, or wherever you have called us, God. I pray, O oh God, that whatever words that I have to say that are not of you, that those would be forgotten, but that your words would be remembered and done for your sake and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, a few years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of going, this is before kids, and so the good old days, we had to, we got to go home, get, go on vacation without them, and uh, we, ex we went to Las Vegas for a vacation, and one of the main reasons to go there was, yes, the food, but also it was only four hours away from um, the Grand Canyon, which I have never seen in my life. And so um, we decided to go, and we, we went on, and we did that four-hour drive, and I had no idea what to expect to, you know, see this, you know, wonder of the world. And as we're driving up, and as we park, and as we get to the South Rim, I remember this. I just stood, and I looked, and I was speechless. For a few minutes, I just stared, and I, I marveled at the sheer mass of this canyon. It stretched so far and wide and deep that it took my brain a little bit to kind of comprehend what I was seeing. Later, I, I learned also on that trip that the Grand Canyon was actually bigger than the state of Rhode Island. It's a gigantic canyon and really a wonder. And every angle I looked and tried to like 
understand. It was just so much wonder. There was the different multi-layered rock formations, and there were different colors. There was a unique like temperature change when you entered the canyon. There was like this unique vegetation and these animals kind of going around that scattered the canyon. And it just left me in this wonder, this awe. But then as we like, you know, walked the trails and went along our way, um, I tried to take a picture like every tourist does. Um, but, you know, you take a picture, you kind of want to get close to the edge, right? Because you want the best view. And as I kind of got to that edge, I like, you know, I was curious. I looked over and wow, that went really far. And as soon as I saw the edge and I looked at kind of how far you could drop, my awe turned into fear. I was genuinely like afraid of my life. And then I began to think of all these weird scenarios. Like, what if I was like left in this canyon? Like, could I ever get out? Like, how would you get out of this place? You know, I would get lost. You would, I would die in this canyon because it's, it's impossible to get out. And so my mind began to wonder. And my, like, my wonder and awe just turned into fear, like genuine fear of this massive wonder of the world. You know, in life, when we encounter something so awe-inspiring, so wonderful, it can also bring up this genuine fear in us. For example, we just dedicated children, a birth of a new baby, right? It brings this wonder and awe for the parents. But then as soon as you take the baby home, it brings this genuine fear of like, I'm now responsible to keep this kid alive. It's pretty scary. Or maybe some of you have experienced this, like you've gotten this amazing opportunity or this amazing job, and it just brings awe and wonder of this privilege you have. But then now when you're in the job or when you're in the role, you have like this fear where you're like, oh my gosh, like this responsibility, like what am I going to do? Like, can I do this? Can I meet the expectations? Awe and fear oftentimes go together. And it got me thinking, how often do I approach God with this same kind of fear and awe, like I did the Grand Canyon? How often do I approach God with this reverence of his holiness, his majesty, his power and glory? In the church, we oftentimes talk a lot about God's love and mercy and kindness and goodness, which are so good and we should all the time. But we don't talk a lot about God's holiness about God's all-consuming wrath, or in Scripture it says all-consuming fire, that he will punish all evil with his wrath. And as a result, our tendency isn't usually to fear him or revere him or respect him as we should. But as we get to our passage, Daniel approaches and experiences the holy, mighty presence of God with this genuine awe and fear. And the question that I have for today is, do we? Do we approach or experience God with that same kind of awe and reverence like Daniel? And my guess, and I will say this by myself, we probably do not. So what I want to do is I want to share three traits of how to approach God with awe and reverence that we see here in this chapter. And so I'm going to jump right in. Trait number one, we approach God with awe and reverence by having a proper picture of who he is. Let's look at verse five in our text. Verse five, it says, 
I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold. Now in scripture, whenever you see that word behold, you have to assume there's like an exclamation mark or exclamation point afterwards. And it's not just like one, it's like two of them. And maybe like two wow-faced emojis right next to them to show just how amazing and just Daniel saying, behold, look, look at what's happening. Because he encounters this divine figure with such vivid attributes. Now, what's important here is not to just look at kind of how does this attributes look like in Jesus. And you should see a picture of um, this kind of picture. You know, there's not there's like you can see kind of how he looks, but it's not the, the best description. Um, but what's important is not so much the literal appearances, but it's more so the symbolisms that we see like we see in Revelations. Remember, Daniel has a lot of symbolism in this book. So let me go through the descriptions one by one here, and you can see this on the screen. He sees this man who has white linens, and immediately in Scripture, we should think of purity and holiness. And it's oftentimes used to describe the priest, the angels, or even God himself. The next thing we see is the belt of fine gold from Uphaz. Uphaz was a place in the day where the best gold was found. So this belt could easily symbolize wealth, but more importantly, royalty and someone who is most likely a king. Number three, the body like beryl. Now, beryl was like a stone, a yellow colored stone like topaz. And it meant that the body, the flesh of this person was not human-like. Number four, the face like lightning and eyes like a flaming torch. This glow and brightness could symbolize that this man could see everything and all things. Nothing was hidden from his sight. Arms and legs like a burnished bronze. Again, his body had a fiery appearance and foundation, which also symbolized his power. And lastly, a voice like the sound of the multitudes, which points out that this was not a human voice, but that this was a voice of great power, but more importantly, of great authority. So Daniel sees this vision of a man who is holy, filled with glory, one of royalty, not human, has the power and authority to speak, and also has super buff and tan legs, all right? Who is this man? Who is this man? Well, I don't have time to go through what all the scholars have said, but basically it falls in two camps. Some say it's a very powerful archangel that come, that's sent by the Lord, and others say it is God himself, most likely the pre-incarnate Jesus. And I personally believe that Daniel here is encountering God himself, mainly because we find the same, a very similar description of this kind of person that John sees, who's John is seeing Jesus here in Revelation 1, and we see it, and I put it side by side in the next slide. I'm not going to go through it, but it's very, very similar to what Daniel sees that John sees in Revelation 1. And the only difference is on the bottom here when um, John sees that this uh, figure has um, the seven stars that represent the church, and that most likely represents what Christ has done after the cross and the resurrection. There's a lot of Bible in there, but um, I believe it is God. So after all that, what then does Daniel, what happens to Daniel here? And if we look in verses 7 to 9, we see that this vision of God was so powerful that others 
kind of hid themselves, but that Daniel's strength left him. And then Daniel couldn't stay awake. And it says here that he fell asleep, but most likely he didn't fall asleep. He fainted, okay? He fainted because of the power that overwhelmed him in the vision. And if you go to Revelation 1, the Apostle John, when he receives the vision from Christ, he also faints too when he experiences God. Why? Why does Daniel faint? Because he encountered the fullness of who God was. Now, I, I'm, I can say this, like many of us, probably most of us, will not have the same experience like Daniel. Like we probably won't be able to experience Jesus in the full of a vision like this. And so the question is, how do I experience and see the fullness of God? One of the main ways is right here. It's in the fullness of God's word. And I feel like our tendency as maybe, you know, as Christians or especially in nowadays is that we, we kind of like reading scripture where it's almost like we're trying to complete a thousand piece puzzle with only 700 pieces. Or maybe trying to build this piece of furniture with only two thirds of the manual. All that we've tried is many times is that when we look at scripture, we commonly read the parts that are more easily understandable or that are you know, nicer to read and not as complicated. And what, the, what, what, that, what that does in our own time is that we neglect books like Leviticus, like First, Second Chronicles, like the prophets that are one third of the entire Bible and Revelations. And when we skip over those books of the Bible, those books actually have the most to say about God's holiness, about God's power, about God's authority, and about God who has control and is over all things. Now, this is important that we can only know the fullness of God if we read and meditate on the fullness of his word. And that is super important for us. And there's many other ways, but I think that's one of the most important ways we get a fuller picture of who God is. Now, there's more to share, but let me go on to the second trait here. The second trait is that we approach God with awe and reverence by praying with humility. If you go to our text in verse 2 to 3, you'll see here that Daniel was mourning for three weeks, and he was probably fasting from most food and drink besides water and vegetables, kind of going back to his Daniel or chapter 1 days. And then in verse 4, you see that he is standing on the bank of the Tigris River, which meant that he was not in the city that he was a government official over. So he was probably going to a secluded place to pray and to fast. And what's unique about Daniel is that he's doing this in the context of mourning. And most likely, scholars uh, presume that he is mourning the fact that he's not sure what's going to happen to his people, the Jewish people, when they go back to Jerusalem. So he is mourning and fasting and asking God, what will happen to my people? And so he spends this concentrated time away with God in prayer. And then if you jump down to verse 11, you, you know, this, this is after Daniel faints, and you see Daniel faints like two or three times in this chapter. But in verse 11, we read uh, the angel saying to Daniel, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the word that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. In verse 12, then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set 
your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God. Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The angel here, most likely Gabriel, assures him not to be afraid, but that he was sent to Daniel because Daniel had set his heart to understand and humbled himself before God. In other words, God gave the vision to Daniel because Daniel approached God with humility, with prayer, with fasting, and with getting away in solitude. Why is this important? Because in order to experience the glory and power of God, you have to first see just how small you really are. And one of the best people who do this, in all honesty, is our children, is children. You know, we just dedicated our children, and, my, and Josiah here, probably the most rambunctious and one that not stays still, um, he uh, reminds me of this so much because um, whenever we go outside, like outside of the house, um, he loves to look at large motor vehicles, trains, trucks, planes, dump trucks. I mean, there's a, there's a ton. We're in a city, right? Okay, the construction vehicles. There's a lot. And what happens is that when he sees that construction vehicle or whatever that is, he says, look, look. He loves that word. Look, look. And then, and then every time he sees it, he's like looking, he's admiring it. And then when it goes away, it, you know, he's, it, it's gone. So it's kind of sad, but he's, it goes away. And then every time, though, when he sees one, especially in the car, he says, look, look. And then if I'm just kind of ignoring him because I don't want to answer him, he repeats himself over and over again. Look, look, until I say, yes, Josiah, that's a train. Yes, that's an airplane. Oh, yes, that's an excavator. I, I think I know every single construction vehicle now because of him. <laughs> Without fail, the sight of those vehicles give him such delight and wonder. But for me, it's not that big of a deal. I've seen so many of them. And honestly, at times, it's really annoying because he says, look, look, so many times. But then one day, I tried to picture myself in his shoes. And, I, and it occurred to me, for Josiah, the reason it's so amazing for him is because he realizes that the vehicle is much bigger than him. And not only bigger, it's louder, it's faster, it's stronger, and it's definitely cooler than what dad drives. <laughs> and that leaves him in awe and wonder. And praying and fasting and going out in solitude into nature are, are all practices that we can do to return to this childlike awe and wonder. Because when we pray, we are saying to God, I'm not that big. I'm not that sufficient. I'm not that great. I, I need you. I need your help. I need your guidance. I need your comfort. And you are making yourself smaller. In fasting, we're intentionally taking out good things in our lives so that we can be filled with the ultimate thing, which is God, so that you are making yourself, again, smaller and more needy. And in solitude, we go out in nature, and this is important here. We're in the city. We need to go out in nature. We need to see that when we go into nature in solitude, we eliminate distractions and the business of our days. We can then soak in the beauty 
the wonder, the simplicity, the grandness of creation that reminds us just how small we are to our creator. In order to experience the wonder of our God, to genuinely fear him for who he is and all his power, we need to spend time in prayer and fasting and solitude to, to recognize that we are much smaller than our God. We are very small, and that only helps us to see a fuller picture of who God is. The last trait that I want to share, third trait, is that we approach God with awe and reverence by being aware of the unseen battle. The unseen battle. Jump down with me to verse 13. Um, Verse 13, it reads this. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, it's really an odd, interesting kind of verse here. Like, what in the world is going on here? Who's the prince of Persia? Who's Michael? Uh, Essentially, the angel that is speaking here that is going to Daniel, he tells Daniel that he was delayed for 21 days because of this prince of the kingdom of Persia who literally stopped him. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help this angel. Now, if you have read scripture before, Michael is the ar- one of the archangels. He's oftentimes called the angel over the Israelites who protects them and fights on behalf of them. But then this prince of Persia, it's probably not a literal king or human. Most likely, it is a spiritual ruler. Most likely, a demon or Satan himself. Now, before I go further, some of you might be like Noah, Are you literally talking about angels and demons? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Remember this. Every physical reality has a spiritual battle behind the scenes. Every physical reality has a spiritual battle behind the scenes. It's so important. I put it on the screen, okay? The the Apostle Paul also speaks of this. He says, Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. As Paul says, and as all scripture really hints at, there is this unseen battle going behind our eyes that we cannot see. And there are strongholds that Satan and his demons have over powerful institutions, like nations, like companies, like cultures. In verse 13, this prince of Persia is most likely the demon or the spiritual authority over the kingdom of Persia, which was the most powerful empire in that day. And scholars claim that this conflict that's going on is simply that the Jewish people were supposed to be released after 70 years. But, and this king, Cyrus, was supposed to be that human king to do it. And this conflict possibly is angels and demons battling out to make sure that the people of Israel will actually be released to go back to Jerusalem as God had promised them. And then in verse 20, you see, you know, right, right midway in verse 20, that the angel mentions again that he has to go back and fight the prince of Persia. And then when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. And essentially, the empire, the Greek empire doesn't come till 200 years after the Persian empire, but the angel is already acknowledging that over the Greek empire, there is another spiritual ruler over that empire that will have influence that the angels will need to fight again. 
And though this happened 2,000 years ago, this still happens today. There are spiritual strongholds over our own country and our own politicians. There are spiritual forces that influence world events, sadly even events like when Russia invaded Ukraine. There are spiritual forces over the idols of money, sex, fame, and even social media. There are spiritual forces over certain neighborhoods, especially in this city, where violence and poverty and injustice lie and so much more. I'm not saying that there aren't any um, physical or social dynamics to these issues. They're not just all spiritual, but I'm saying that the spiritual battle is real. And in addition to the institutional strongholds that Satan and his demons have, there's, they also influence us at a smaller scale. There are spiritual battles that can affect our physical health, our mental and emotional well-being, our marriages, our relationships, and even over addictions and temptations. And, you know, when I was younger, and I didn't know this until I got a lot older, but there was a season of my life when I was a kid, maybe like elementary school, where I experienced consistently many nightmares and spiritual oppressions. Now, I won't go into the details, but I can tell you that those weren't just random nightmares. Those were real spiritual battles entering into my physical reality. And only when I grew older and I talked to my mom, who also experienced similar spiritual oppressions during that time, did we connect the dots that it was most likely from um, the alcohol addiction that my dad held for a very long time. It was a very dark time in our family, and I believe that there was a spiritual and I would say demonic force over my dad that affected our entire family. And only after much prayer and fasting, mainly from my mom, did that slowly go away. And I don't share this with you just to like scare you or to say that, you know, all these, like just, it's just all spiritual things. But what I'm sharing with you is that this greater spiritual battle affects you and me and this world still to this day. And in scripture, Satan is often called the deceiver. And one of the things he does is blind us from the truth. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul reminds us again that the God of this age, literally Satan, blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Though this is just referencing unbelievers, we also know that Satan would love it if we didn't believe he had much influence over this world. He would love it if we just trusted in what was tangible, in what was scientifically proven, in what, was, what we could only see with our eyes. He would love that for the church. And to be honest, the reason why this like, language or this conversation of spiritual warfare is so hard for us 21st American Christians to, to, to believe is because we are honestly more comfortable with the tangible. We are more comfortable with the scientific method or searching questions that we can answer on Google rather than accept the fact that we cannot fully understand the spiritual world. We cannot understand the mystery that lies beyond our eyes. It's easier. It's easier not to, to believe or think in this way. It makes things less complicated. It's easier to control life. It's not as scary and confusing. It's easier to see a doctor, build a better program, or create a new law. But in order to be aware of the unseen battle, we have to confess that we are powerless. 
that we don't know that much, that we can't fight demons and the spiritual rulers of our age, that we can't heal every sickness, fix every problem, or create peace in our world on our own, that we are weak and we need help. And that's what Daniel does throughout this chapter. What Daniel does is he recognizes that he is weak. He faints three times. He asks for the angel to help him. And the angel comes and helps him. In verse 18, the angel responds to his ask for strength. And he says, Daniel says, verse 18, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. In Daniel's weakness, the angel of the Lord touched him to make him strong. Sound familiar, church? It is in the gospel, it is in the message of Jesus Christ, that only when we are weak, when we recognize we are broken and unholy, only when we are on our knees confessing our sins and the inability to save ourselves, only when we are small and powerless compared to the infinite glory and power of God, can God respond. But instead of sending an angel like he did to Daniel 500 years ago, or 500 years after Daniel's, you know, 500 years after Daniel's vision, what God would do was he would take off his own glory and he would touch all of humanity as a man. And in his presence, he would love and serve others, but he would also defeat sickness, death, and all things evil. And one day, he would then take upon all of our sins, all of our brokenness, all the things that make us powerless and put it on his shoulders and die on a cross for our sins. And then in three days, he would defeat sin, death, and the spiritual powers of this world so that those who believe in him will be forgiven and given new life. At the cross, Jesus tells us that we are greatly loved. After his resurrection, Jesus tells us, do not fear my peace I give to you. While on his throne, every day, Jesus intercedes on behalf of us, encouraging us when we are weak. And right now, Jesus has given each one of us who follow him the gift of the Holy Spirit, who strengthens us and gives us courage to fight any battle that we face today. The gospel is good news because a God who was powerful and holy, who could have destroyed us for all of our sins, chose to lay down his life and strengthen us. In church, this is only good news if you accept the fact that you are weak and that you are powerless and that you need a savior. And those three traits that I kind of shared with you, those are kind of the applicational points for today. So the points that hopefully you can take one of those and you can apply it into your life, into your week, maybe spend more time in the fullness of God's word, maybe spend more time in praying or fasting or solitude, or maybe just be more aware that the spiritual battle is real. Let me just close with this um, last kind of um, 
last kind of story or segment here. As, as Thomas shared so wonderfully that um, today is Mother's Day, um, and I have uh, been very grateful for my own mother. Uh, my mother is an immigrant woman. She came to the States uh, around 30 years of age, knowing very little English, worked very hard outside the home and inside the home to raise my brother and myself. And I don't know about you, but um, are your mothers, but my mother was someone who could just, you know, she sacrificially loved us and cared us so much, but she also instilled this deep sense of fear in me and my brother. We feared my mom greatly because when she would raise her voice, and this wasn't often now, we knew like the, like the gravity of the room just like changed when she raised her voice. We would drop anything and run to her because we knew that she meant business. But it wasn't because we were scared of her. It wasn't because we like feared her or afraid of her, um, but it was because we knew the deep love and care that drove us into that healthy fear of her. It was that she loved us so much that she did not want us to be in our own mess and to be just bad boys. So that at times, what she needed to do as a good mother was lay down the law, was to show her that she had authority, that she needed to discipline us when needed, because it's the same way that God does for us, that he loves us too much to just be this kind and lovey, dovey and fluffy God. He also needs to display his power, his glory, and his might to show us just how serious he is and how seriously he loves us and wants to change us. You know, today as uh, we celebrate mothers, let's also remember we approach our God with awe and reverence because he holds all power and authority and he loves us perfectly, even when we didn't deserve it. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, the word this morning. Thank you for uh, a very, um, yeah, complex word, but also an important word for us that, God, oftentimes we don't fear you. We don't take awe and wonder like we do in other things in this world. We, we take more awe and wonder in your created things than we do you. And so, Father, God, I just ask that as we go throughout our weeks, as we go to work, as we raise our children, as we meet up with friends and have dinner, as we do our own devotional times, God, that we would approach you with more fear and awe and wonder than we did before. And so, God, build us, build healthy habits in us, I pray, that would have a proper posture of worship and praise of who you are and all that you've done. God, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, God, just bless your word and let it bear good fruit in your own timing and way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.